Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you that you've made yourself known to us <clears throat> in um, directing the, uh, the saints who've gone before us to uh, record your works, record your um, character for us, that we might know you. And we thank you for um, giving us your word made flesh, for giving us Jesus Christ, that we might, uh, we might know your love in, in a more tangible way. Having seen and, and touched and heard his voice, the saints um, were uh, renewed in their conviction of faith. And uh, we pray that you would give us, in hearing your word preached um, and in encountering the spirit of your son, Jesus Christ, uh, we, would, um, we would be strengthened in our faith. Uh, we pray that... Uh, the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is the last Sunday in Zechariah. You have made it to the end. If you were with us uh, last week, we started the chat we started the last chapter, Zechariah 14, and we were kind of trying to explore and make sense of kind of what the, the confusing logic of that, that first half of the chapter, right? We said that God was, was angry with his people, um, so he assembled an army against them. And then that army committed unspeakable acts against the people of God. And then God defended his people against the army he himself had assembled against them, right? That's an interesting and confusing uh, setup that we explored last week. And this week, uh, as we get to the last half, last half of Zechariah 14, uh, we're seeing God um, fighting against this army that he had assembled against his people in judgment and um and we're seeing the sorts of uh things that he does uh, to them there are plagues that he promises right their flesh will rot while they are still on their feet their eyes shall rot in their sockets their tongue shall rot in their mouths and on them he he pours out his wrath in order to communicate his his hatred of their of their ways the judgment of God sets the standard, right, by which he will judge the world. Those who oppose him and his people and his ways, he will in turn oppose. But his victory in this battle serves another purpose for us, right? In addition to communicating the justice and the compassion of our God and the moral standard against which he will judge humanity, the victory of God over his enemies increases his glory through the, the, the fealty, the, the allegiance the conquered show him in their worship. God conquers his enemies, and then he requires that they serve him as an enduring testimony and reminder of his victory and glory. Verses 16 and 17 read, all who survive of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the festival of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain upon them. The worship of God is the service he requires of those whom he conquers. An example of this from modern day, perhaps a lighthearted example from the modern day, might be the innocent betting that goes on between two friends 
One of the friends is an Arkansas football fan, the other a fan of the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame. Now, we obviously know who would win such a contest between these two schools, but before the game, these two friends make a deal that if their team loses, they will walk around the next day in the opposing team's jersey. So the Arkansas fan would have to wear a Notre Dame jersey or the Notre Dame fan would have to wear a Razorback jersey. And everywhere they went, this jersey, this jersey was a reminder that they lost and an admission, although a begrudging one, that the other football team is the superior one, right? God does not require any change in apparel, but he does require a change in allegiance and worship that testifies that he has conquered us and that he is glorious. He is the superior one. It was not uncommon in the ancient world for the, the conqueror to demand allegiance or fealty from a, per, from a people whom he conquered in war. Neither was it uncommon for the, the conqueror to return from war and hold a parade with the, the conquered ones walking the streets behind the conqueror as a testimony to his power and valor. In the Roman world, which was not the backdrop for Zechariah's prophecy, this practice was well attested and it was preserved in literature and in artwork on arches and reliefs and coins and statues. And even though it's not the backdrop of the Zechariah passage, it's, it's still helpful for us uh, to learn of this Roman practice because it's, it's foreign to us, but also because the Roman practice does form the backdrop for our New Testament passage this morning, 2 Corinthians 2. One scholar describes for us the Roman parades or processions, as the Romans called them, that followed military victories. They were ostentatious celebrations filled with valiant soldiers, the spoils of war, and the most theatrical pomp and circumstances Rome could muster. Moreover, the triumphal procession demonstrated Rome's prowess as the victor, not only by parading the spoils of war, but also by leading in triumph the most important leaders and intimidating warriors of the enemy now presented as conquered slaves. The role of those led in triumph was to reveal the glory of the one who had conquered them, ultimately through their public execution and death. At the end of the parade, the Romans publicly slaughtered as a sacrifice to their gods those prisoners who had been led in procession. And though a gruesome thought to us, what better way to magnify one's victory, while at the same time offering a sacrifice of gratitude to the gods, than to kill publicly the leaders and the most valiant of the vanquished warriors as the final act of triumph over them. In Zechariah, God's doing something akin to this, something similar to this. He did not kill the survivors, but he did require their worship of him. From those once opposed to him, he demanded praise. He had spared them the plague that consumed their, their brothers, but he promised they too would taste his wrath if they refused or neglected their worship of him. It would seem that such worship would be half-hearted and begrudging. But in the New Testament, we get the chance to hear from one of those conquered by God. And rather surprisingly, we hear him expressing genuine gratitude for God's victory. This conquered man offers genuine praise of his conqueror. It's neither forced nor begrudging. 
And the man whose testimony we have is the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 2, the New Testament passage printed in your bulletin this morning, Paul writes, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Paul was conquered by God through his son, Jesus Christ. His defeat was foreshadowed by the prophet Zechariah. It was not a, a military defeat, but a spiritual one. But it was no less complete because of that. Paul was an enemy of God, and he didn't even know it. Right? Paul, then called Saul, believed that Christians were a threat to his former faith. He thought this Jesus figure was dangerous. And as a Jew, he was looking for the Messiah, and he certainly didn't think someone as insignificant or innovative as Jesus could have been him. Because he was, besides, he was crucified and dead. Therefore, Saul persecuted Christians. He literally hunted them down. And in Acts, we find him overseeing and authorizing the stoning of Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church. But then he encountered Christ, not in the grave, but alive and in all his glory. Jesus Christ appeared to Saul as he was huffing and puffing, driven here and there by his anger. And he asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he then blinded this violent man and he put him to death. Not literally, of course, but figuratively, spiritually. Saul lived in darkness for three days, echoing the length of time that Jesus himself lay in the darkness of his tomb. And we don't know what Paul experienced in those three days or in what way God was communicating with him, if at all. But when Paul's vision was restored to him, he emerged from the darkness a different man entirely. You might even say a new man, which is an accurate description, one that even Paul himself might have used to describe his transformation. Paul went into that darkness believing Jesus was a charlatan, a peddler of snake oil, and that truth must be defended and advanced through power, even violent power. And he came out of the darkness, proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God and defending him with very different tools through the sacrifice of himself. Paul no longer engaged in violence, but submitted himself over and over again to mistreatment on account of his new belief. So strong was his faith in the truth of a resurrected Christ that his life became a living sacrifice. He was willing to lose it because he knew he would gain it. And when Paul talks about his conversion, he says that he died and was brought to life again. In Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Romans 6, Paul asks, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. 
Paul understood that in the darkness of those three days, he was being crucified. Christ was conquering his soul, purchasing it for himself. And when Paul walked out of the darkness into the light, he knew that he was experiencing a foretaste of resurrection, that he had been allowed to live on, not to live his own life, but to live Christ's life now. And this is the story of every Christian. Few, if any of us, will ever experience something as dramatic as Paul experienced. Neither is our experience lesser than Paul's because it's not accompanied by a bright light or an audible voice. But absent all those things, every Christian is put to death and brought back to life. Like a divine warrior, Christ conquers and claims our souls as his spoils of war. And what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians then is that Christ then leads us through this life as if we were participants in a Roman triumphal procession, not as the conquerors, but as the conquered. Christ is the conqueror. We are the prize he won through his victory over death, and he now parades us around in order to show his strength and his glory. Our worship, the most central activity of the Christian life, testifies to his goodness and glory. And here is Paul again in 2 Corinthians. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. Christ the triumphant leads us, the spoils of his victory. Our defeat is his glory, but it is our glory as well. God required worship of the nations in Zechariah 14, and they, they offered it begrudgingly. I mean, they came to Jerusalem because there was the threat of drought if they didn't, right? But in Paul, there is no resentment. There is no begrudging worship. 2 Corinthians 2 begins with, thanks be to God. Paul's rejoicing in his death. He celebrates his defeat because in death, the Christian is set free from themselves. No longer do we have to fight for ourselves because Christ fought for us. No longer do we have to to prove our worthiness. No longer do we have to seek people's love because Christ has proved our worthiness. He has shown us his love. No longer do we have to define ourselves because Christ defines us. No longer do we have to wear ourselves out searching for an identity or bear the insecurity and pain of the world disagreeing with our conclusions because Christ put us to death and he raised us up to live his life and not our own. We have been found in him. We have inherited an identity that cannot be taken from us because it was given us by God and is not the creation of our own minds or desires. And more than all of this, we have been set free from the influence of sin that plagued our old selves. Instead, we have been raised in Christ and empowered by his spirit to live a new life, a life that's pleasing to him, a sacrificial life. Remember what Paul said in Romans 6, our old self was crucified with him 
so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. What Paul is pointing out is the illogical nature of sin in a Christian. Sin is the act of of living for oneself, but in Christ, Paul would point out, you no longer exist. You died. It's not you who lives, it's Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live is to be lived as a living sacrifice. The Roman procession culminated in the sacrifice, the burning of the conquered in order to illustrate the full extent of the victor's power and to give thanks to the gods for their victory. Well, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul includes even this gruesome conclusion in his explanation of Christ's victory over our souls. For he says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. As we follow after Christ in this triumphal procession, there's a a fragrance, an aroma that arises from us, that fills the world, and it fills the nostrils of our God. This rising smell is the smell of our burning, our sacrifice. Not that we are being put to death, but that out of our joy, we are offering ourselves up as sacrifices putting to death the sin that lingers on in our bodies and giving ourselves to the service of God, willing to accept whatever comes our way on his account, just as the Apostle Paul did with his life. And to make it even more explicit that our sacrifice is what Paul is describing in 2 Corinthians, he says elsewhere in Romans 12, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here in Romans, he says explicitly what he only describes figuratively in 2 Corinthians, that Christ conquered us and from us requires what he required of the people in Zechariah, our fealty, our allegiance, our worship. The worship of God is the service he requires of those whom he conquers. And that worship is the willing offering of ourselves as living sacrifices, the acknowledgement that we do not live for ourselves, but for the sake of Christ. All that we have and all that we are is his. If we return to Zechariah 14, we get a broader view of this act of spiritual sacrifice. What is it that we do? It's not just the denial of ourselves or our resistance of sin, it is that but it is also our service to others. It is not, in other words, just negative, but positive as well. In verse 20, Zechariah writes this strange thing. He writes, all the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be as holy as the bowls in front of the altar, and every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts. What Zechariah seems to be saying here is that the pots and pans in your kitchen have become as holy and as sacred as the pots and pans that were once used in the temple to offer sacrifices. Those utensils, the priests alone were allowed to handle. 
but Christ has put into every believer's hand and home the utensils of sacrifice, pots in which to cook a meal for a hungry neighbor, and meals that facilitate conversation, encourage hospitality, love tangibly shown. This is an act of spiritual worship, a living sacrifice of time and space and resources in response to the victory of Christ over your souls. The aroma of such meals and this offering of yourself to your neighbors in your city rises into the nostrils of our God and he's pleased and he's glorified. It also fills the air in our city and people begin to take notice of the goodness of God in you. My brothers and sisters, you are dead. And even as you live, you are dead. For the reason you live is Christ. So I urge you to die to yourselves and to offer yourselves daily as living sacrifices to the glory of our God, of our King and Conqueror, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is our spiritual act of worship through which God is pleased and glorified. While you deny yourselves, do not deny your neighbor, but offer yourselves in Christ to the world, every pot and pan in your home, every penny in your piggy bank, every possession you have been given are the instruments of praise and sacrifice. And from your homes, scattered throughout this city, may an aroma rise to the praise and glory of our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.